First John chapter three, verse seven. Um, before I get in uh, to the message tonight, um, we're going to be having a baptism in mid-June for any that would like to be baptized. So we're going to be start to announce that. Uh, we got several children and several adults that would like to be baptized. So we're going to be getting that, the word out for that. And uh, don't forget that uh, there's going to be quite a group out at Top of the World this weekend for the men's retreat. They had to literally turn some men away this year. Uh, there's going to be about 60 men out there, uh, probably about 30 from the Oasis and 30 who are not from the Oasis. Uh, in fact, there's about 10 guys who are coming from San Diego this weekend to come to Top of the World to be a part of our men's retreat. So it's going to be a good weekend. I'm going to go out on Saturday and spend a day out there with the guys and then be here, obviously, for church on Sunday. You're not going to get rid of me that quickly. So, uh, anyway, hey, tonight, before I read this passage tonight, uh, let's remember that one of the main purposes of this letter was John the Apostle needed to combat false teaching. And one of the uh, false teachings that John needed to combat was that you know, all that really mattered was that someone confessed or professed a relationship with God and whatever their lifestyle ended up being, lifestyle didn't matter. Behavior didn't matter. And John is like, whoa. He's like, if one has truly had an encounter with God, there will be a lifestyle change. Bottom line. That's, that's just it. So as we come to this passage tonight, because a lot of people even ask me about this, you know, especially a pastor who teaches that, you know, I believe that once a person is truly saved, that they are permanently saved. Then they'll find a friend or a family member or someone who has confessed or professed a relationship with Christ, but who is living an ungodly lifestyle. And what we try to do as human beings is we try to reconcile what we think is going on with this human being with the Word of God. And what we have to do is let the Word of God be the authority, not the experiences of other people. The Word of God is never to be subject to our judgment. Let me repeat that. The Word of God is never to be subject to our judgment. In other words, we don't come to the Word of God and go, well, but there's this, so somehow I... No. The Word of God stands above everything, and it is the authority of everything else. So we have to interpret every life experience, everything, to the Word of God, not the other way around. So with that... Let's read these verses and let's get into them tonight. Beginning at verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as Jesus is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was revealed to destroy the works of the devil. 
Everyone who has been fathered by God does not practice sin because God's seed resides in him. And thus he is not able to sin because he has been fathered by God. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are revealed. Everyone who does not practice righteousness, the one who does not love his fellow Christian, is not of God. Now notice, again, John is not a gray area person. John is black and white. And John is going to reveal some truth to us that you and I just need to basically, you know, accept and, and comes to, come to grips with. And, and the main thing is that, unlike what these false teachers were teaching even in John's day, lifestyle matters. Behavior matters. It's not just enough to profess or confess that my relationship or your relationship or anyone's relationship with God has got to be borne out in our lifestyle. So that's why, to me, the balance of me saying that I believe that once a person is truly saved, that they are permanently saved is because I also believe that the Bible teaches that one who is truly saved, not one who confesses, not one who professes, because anyone can claim anything, but one who has truly been fathered by God, as John says, cannot live a lifestyle of sin. Bottom line, can't. John says that can't be the case. If a person is living a lifestyle of sin then the only biblical explanation for that is their claim can be that they're of God, but the bottom line the Bible says is they've never been fathered by God. So let's get into this tonight. Good stuff. First of all, he starts out with little children. Again, a term that speaks to all of us that no matter how long we've been saved or how old we are even physically, we are to look at ourselves as little children, as those who need to continue to be learning and growing. We are all students in training. None of us have arrived yet. And so he's warning all of us as the children of God, let no one, not even one, is what the Greek language means, not even one deceive you. Let not even one person lead you away from the truth of God's Word into error, into looking at things erroneously. And one of the things that God stopped me with here, and I think wanted me to share with all of us tonight, is this. Sometimes the biggest, I guess, reason that we can be deceived is not so much about the deception itself, but about the one who's bringing it. In other words, it's the person that we are susceptible to. It's the one. There's someone in our life that has influence. There's someone in our life that, that we listen to. And that's why John is saying, not even one. Don't let anyone. I don't care what relationship they are to you, what what ties you have with them, what your background is, if they are bringing error and they're trying to lead you from truth into error, don't follow down that road with them. You see, because many times where we go wrong is we allow relationships to skew us from what the truth of God says. 
And that's why he's saying to all of us, let not even one deceive you. Lifestyle matters. Which is why then he goes on to say, the one who practices righteousness is righteous. Now notice, he doesn't say the one who practices righteousness becomes righteous. Because again, the Bible clearly teaches we don't come to God in our own merit system, being good enough, doing enough good works to merit our relationship with God. You see, that's not how we come to God. What John is simply saying is that even though we don't come to God on our merit, when we practice righteousness, what we are showing others is that we have met God. That we have a relationship with God because we are practicing righteousness. In other words, our practicing righteousness is evident that we have a relationship with God, that God is in us, and God is the one enabling us to be able to practice righteousness. Because without the Holy Spirit empowering us, none of us could practice righteousness. Our lifestyle would be predominantly characterized by sin more than by righteousness. But one of the reasons why God sends His Holy Spirit into our being when we become a Christian is so that we then cannot have to live on this level any longer, slaves to sin and and succumbing to to sinful impulses and desires and stuff, but we can live on a higher level. We can start practicing righteousness. Not that we're ever going to be perfect, but that our lifestyle will predominantly be characterized by righteousness. And so that's what John is saying here. Our efforts do not bring us to God. They simply show that we have met Him. And that's what John is saying here. He's not teaching a works righteousness. He's simply saying that practicing righteousness will be evident to everybody that we truly know God and have a relationship with Him. And then he goes on in verse 7 to say, just as Jesus is righteous. Again, Jesus is always the standard. He always needs to be the pattern and the ultimate example that we follow. Our standard should never be dumbed down to something or someone else. We should never get caught in our Christian life comparing our Christian life to other Christians. Even though we do that, that should not be the case. As we grow and mature in Christ, our goal should be Jesus Christ. Our standard should be Christ. And even like in the song we just sang about, you know, keeping our eyes on Jesus. That, that's even about making sure that we're not looking to anyone else to be our standard, but we're looking to Jesus Christ. He is the standard that God has set for all of us. We are to be followers of Him. You also notice then in verse 7 this truth. That the ultimate will of God for every believer is not just heaven when we die, but Christ-likeness now. That's really important. The ultimate will of God is not just heaven when we die, but to be like Jesus now. And that's what God wants to begin to see in those who are truly His children that we would begin through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit living within us, through this new life in Christ, 
to begin to practice righteousness. As Paul said to the Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things will begin to pass away and all things will begin to become new. There will be this transformation of life. According to the Bible, one cannot truly be saved without experiencing a change, a transformation. That's just not biblical. Now, one can claim to be a Christian and still not change. But the Bible says that one who's truly been fathered by God will be changed, will be transformed. That things will start to look different because God cannot invade a person's life and there be no change. That just can't happen. And that's what the Bible teaches. And that's what John was combating. Because again, the false teachers were going around in John's day even, saying some 25 years after Jesus was on earth, so not long after Jesus ascended back to heaven, and basically saying, well, all that, all that matters is what a person believes. It doesn't matter how they live their life. And John's like, whoa! It, it very much matters how we live our lives. In fact, it's all about how we live our lives. It's all about our behavior. It's not just about what we believe, because if we truly believe something, it will change the way we live. So then, John then says, now here's something else I want us to chew on. The one who practices sin is actually of the devil. Wow. So notice a couple things. He's saying if someone's life is predominantly characterized by sin, then the source of their conduct, the, the greatest influence in their life is not God. It's the devil. Now let me, let me also separate something here. He is talking in this specific verse about practicing sin. So again, someone's life who predominantly is characterized by sin, and he's saying, yeah, they're, they're of the devil. But make no mistake about it. Another thing that John is teaching here is this very sobering truth and reality. And that is that every one of us, even Christians, every action, every attitude, everything that comes out of our mouth can either be traced back to God as its source or back to the devil as its source, even as a Christian. Now, that doesn't mean that as a Christian, I can practice sin. Because if I'm truly a Christian, my life will predominantly be characterized by righteousness. It doesn't mean that I won't commit acts of sin. That's unbiblical. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, John says in 1 John 1. So we're going to commit acts of sin. But as you look at your overall life, as a Christian, it will be predominantly characterized by righteousness. But when we do sin... Our sin isn't coming from God. He's not the source of that bad attitude or those bad words that come out of our mouth. Who's the source of it? The devil. And so even as a Christian, I can do things in my life that the source of those things are not God, they're actually the devil. And we see a great biblical example of this from the Gospels. Remember when, when Peter is trying to talk Jesus out of going to the cross. And do you remember Jesus' response to Peter? He doesn't say, get behind me, Peter. He says what? Get behind me, who? Satan. 
Because at that moment in time, Peter was an instrument of the devil. Not it being an instrument of God. Because the things coming out of his mouth, the source could be traced back to the devil, not to God. And it reminds us then why we need to walk in the Spirit. Why we need to live in the Spirit. Why we need to have our minds saturated with the Word of God. Because as especially as a follower of God, we want as we grow and mature, we want less and less of our actions and attitudes and words to come from the devil We want more and more of our actions and attitudes and words to come from God as our source. Because we as Christians certainly don't want to be instruments of the devil. We want to be instruments of God. So I wanted to make that distinction. Then go on here in verse 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. He was the one that started all this rebellion against God. In fact, the Bible here is really teaching here in other places that the devil's behavior is very predictable. And you realize that. He he never does what's right. He always does what's wrong. So it's pretty predictable what Satan's going to do. He's always going to, to do things that do not originate or are empowered by God at all. In fact, Jesus emphasizes this. Keep your finger in 1 John and go back to the Gospel of John, to John chapter 8. And and obviously, the Apostle John was there to hear Jesus say these words. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus talked about this. And I think that these words, as well as others that Jesus taught, probably made a great impression on John. And later on, obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John then further expanded on even what Jesus taught about the devil. Notice what Jesus says about the devil in verse uh, 44 of chapter 8, and also about the people. You people are from your father, the devil, and you want to do what your father desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not uphold the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he lies, he speaks according to his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. That's all he does is lie. That's all he does is wrong. That's all he does is sin. Satan couldn't do something good or righteous if he wanted to. In fact, he's become such a, uh, a, a degraded being by this time of thousands of years of doing nothing but wrong and sin, he's actually become very good at it in a bad way, if you know what I mean. And of course, Jesus even reminds us that even from the very beginning... It didn't take long for his influence even into the first family on earth to see a murder take place between Cain and Abel. By the way, something interesting, I've been studying Genesis chapter 3, really the whole book of Genesis here recently just for my own personal, and then I shared some thoughts down in Mexico from the book of Genesis. But I I found it very interesting in my last study of, of, of the early chapters of Genesis that Satan didn't bother to come and tempt Adam when it was just Adam. That he waited until Eve was there to come and do his dirty work, if you will. And it shows the hostility, if you will, that Satan has towards marriage and towards the home and towards the family. Because it was only when a marriage was established and a home was established that Satan then tried to begin to get his you know, foot in the door. 
Uh, he didn't come when Adam was all by himself. He came when Adam and Eve then had a relationship and he could come between them and their God. Just something interesting to consider. Back to 1 John then, chapter 3. Then notice these good words though. For this purpose, John says, this purpose, the Son of God was revealed. This is why He came. This is why He, you know, became man. This was the purpose of the incarnation. To destroy the works of the devil. Notice, Jesus didn't come to minimize the works of the devil, to neutralize the works of the devil, to limit or alleviate the works of the devil. He came to destroy the works of the devil. The word destroy means to overthrow. It, it, it means to, you know, completely abolish. And very interestingly, too, if you chart this word that's translated destroy here in 1 John 3, 8, and how it's used in other places, I'll just share one of them. Very interestingly, it's also used in the Gospel of John chapter 11, and it's translated loosed whenever Jesus is calling Lazarus out of the tomb. And Lazarus is still, even though now he's been resurrected from the dead, he's still got all these grave clothes around him. And Jesus says to those around him, loose him and let him go. And it's the, also the idea that in this word destroy is the ultimate purpose, which is to set men free. And that's what Jesus came to do. That was his purpose. His purpose was to break the power of sin and to destroy what the devil is trying to do in our lives. Because left to ourselves, and, and left to, to God not intervening, this world would have even been worse off than what it is right now. That through Jesus, and through those of us who believe in Jesus, the devil's influence in our life, and his, his force in our life, and all of that, can be destroyed, can be overthrown to where we don't have to, to listen to Him. If we give in to Him and His temptations, it's because we want to, not because we have to, because we have a greater power now. John says later on, you can overcome them because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. And through the, the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and, and even the power of the Father of God that, that we have in our lives, he has destroyed the works of the devil. And so we need to live in that victory. We need to claim that victory for ourselves because this is why Jesus came. That's why I think it grieves the heart of God and breaks the heart of God when He truly looks down at one of His children, a legitimate child of God who is, is trapped in sin and, and, and caught in it. Because... They don't realize that they've already been given within them the power to overcome that. Because they have, if they have, the indwelling Holy Spirit living in them, they've got God. God is greater than anything that you and I could ever come up against. Greater than, than Satan by far, who was just a mere created being. Greater than our flesh. This is why Jesus came and He wants to bring victory in our lives. He wants us to be an overcomer. And so again, we go back to the whole thing that 
lifestyle does matter. And God wants us to live on a, on a different plane to show and to be evidence that God's, the, the reality of God in our lives makes a huge difference in the way we look at things and our attitudes and our, our actions and the way we talk and all of that. That Jesus Christ really does make a difference in the way we live our lives. And no true Christian should ever say, you know, I can't overcome something. Because again, like Paul says, I can through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. We need to be reminded of that and we need to share that truth with others as well. So then John goes on to say this. Everyone who has been fathered by God, verse 9, spiritually birthed by God, does not practice sin. Again, it doesn't mean we don't commit acts of sin, but it means that one who is truly born again will not have a lifestyle that is predominantly characterized by sin. Why? Because John says, God's seed resides in him. I think the seed here is the Holy Spirit. That which is planted within us is permanently established in us. And that which is established in us permanently is the Holy Spirit. The Bible says we are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. He is our guarantee that we are a child of God. And therefore, if we truly have the Holy Spirit living within us, John says, we cannot practice sin. Sin as a lifestyle is incompatible with a true Christian. Now, I realize that's going to blow up a lot of people's theology because the way they have been thinking about things and trying to make sense of things has been based on not the truth of God's Word, but the experiences in their life. And again, I go back to what I said earlier. God's Word should never be subject to our judgment. God's Word's God's Word. And we've got to reconcile then our experiences and the things that happen to us or others to God's Word, not the other way around. We, we can't try to then take God's Word and fit it in to make it fit what we want it to. No. We've got to let everything else fit the word of God. So he goes on to say this, because God's seed resides in him and thus he is not able to sin, meaning continue to live in a lifestyle predominantly characterized by sin. Why? Because he has been fathered by God. By the way, the word sin here, and the reason I'm using it in that tense is that if you study that, that's what that tense of the Greek verb sin means. It's not talking about just committing an act of sin here and there. It's talking about a continuous lifestyle of continuous sin, you see. And so John here is just making that point. Again, going back to the main thing. Lifestyle does matter. Then he says this, verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are revealed. Literally, the offspring. And so notice a couple things here that John is teaching in this verse. 
He's basically saying that every human being only comes from one spiritual side. Again, to John, there is no third group, no fourth group, no fifth group. Every human being falls in one of only two categories. Either we have been born again and birthed into God's family through faith in Christ and have become a child of God, or we have never accepted Christ as our Savior and we remain in our, dead in our sins and trespasses and we remain a child of the devil. Only by the fact that then our lifestyle predominantly characterizes what the devil would want us to do and we're more influenced by the devil than we are anyone or anything else, which also brings up an interesting point. Isn't it interesting that many unbelievers and people who reject God in a relationship with God, one of the premises for doing so is because they say, I want to be my own person. I'm independent. I call the shots in my life. I do what I want to do. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not the truth of the Bible. The truth of the Bible is, you and I can claim that we're calling the own, our own shots and we're living life the way we want to, but the Bible would clearly contradict that and say, no, if, if you're living that way, then you're doing what the devil wants you to do. You're following the devil. So in other words, really when it comes down to it, it's not that Christians are followers of Jesus Christ and everyone else just does their own thing. No, the Bible would say, if we're either a follower of Jesus Christ or we're following the devil, but we're following some, someone. We're not independent. Our actions are not independent. It's not like we're not listening to anybody or we're not heavily influenced by somebody. We absolutely are. We're just not, many people out there in the world just aren't willing to admit that the things that they do in their life is because they're following some spiritual, you know, source in their life other than God. They think that they're calling their own shots and the devil's got them right where he wants to. So again, only two groups. There is no third group. And that's sobering to think about, but something that you and I, even as Christians, we need to, we need to come to that reality. You know, that's one of the reasons why God calls us as the church to be a witness, because we want to share with these folks who are basically enslaved to sin and practicing sin and feeling so hopeless about being able to have the power to overcome anything in their life, that through Jesus Christ, you can have a power that you never realized and that you don't have to live that way. You don't have to feel hopeless. You don't have to feel trapped in that behavior, you see. You don't have to be all discouraged and, and depressed. God can make a whole difference in your life. But you've got to make that choice and let God into your life and stop following what the devil wants you to do. Say no to the devil and say yes to Jesus. But the other thing that we need to see here is when he says in verse 10, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are revealed. And that word revealed means to be plainly recognized or manifest. So what John is also saying is this. In time, based upon someone's lifestyle, you'll know. You'll know. 
which is what Jesus said. By their fruits, you'll know them. You'll be able to recognize. You just look at someone's lifestyle and over time, you know. Just like if we're honest with ourselves, we take an uh, inventory of our life, you just know. Am I truly of God or am I just fooling myself and just claiming to be of God when my lifestyle really has no... Um, doesn't look at all like Jesus or practicing righteousness at all. In time, things are revealed. People can only fake righteousness or even fake practicing righteousness only so long. Eventually, the truth will come out. And that's what John is saying here. So then he leaves us with this. Everyone who does not practice righteousness, the one who does not love his fellow Christian, is not of God. Now, that last phrase, let me take that first. The phrase, not of God, doesn't mean one ha doesn't have a relationship with God. Because how can I not love my fellow Christian if I'm not a Christian to begin with? You see the logic there. What that phrase means is that my actions in not loving God is not being animated or empowered by God, which goes back to one of the main themes of 1 John. It means I'm not living in fellowship with God if I'm not loving my fellow Christian. But here's what I want to leave with us, and this amazingly trans, transcends into Sunday's message. Notice that the one thing, again, that John brings up as an illustration of practicing righteousness above everything else isn't love for unbelievers, being a witness, isn't praying more, isn't even a greater understanding of the Word of God or someone who serves God. No, notice what his point is. One who practices righteousness. One who looks like Jesus. One who is following Jesus. One who is impersonating Jesus. Who is emulating Jesus. Will be one who consistently is loving their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Wow. And by the way, this word love speaks about expressing it, not just saying it. Because that's what love is. Remember, in the Bible, love is an action word. It's got to be more than just telling someone, I love you. It's got to be in my life style, showing them I love them. Just like Jesus. When he got up that night, and he put that towel around his waist and he went around and washed every one of the disciples' feet, including Judas, the one he knew who would betray him. Now, that's love. That's love. And this is the kind of love that we are called to. In other words, what John is saying is, you want to show you're practicing righteousness and that you are of God and that you have God in you? Then start loving your fellow Christians. 
Start here in the family of God. Make, make your relationship with God evident there. And then we'll go from there. If we can't love each other, then, John says, then we've got to go back to square one. That's, that's the square one. I can claim I practice righteousness, but he says, if I'm not truly loving my brothers and sisters in Christ, my fellow Christians, then at that moment, in that season, I'm not, I'm not of God. I'm not, I'm not reflecting who God is. And not to jump into Sunday's message, but that's what we as the church are supposed to be. Above everything else, we are supposed to be a reflection as the church of who God really is. In other words, as people look at us, the church, they should see God in us. Which means they should see us loving each other the way God calls us to love each other. It's in our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ where it all starts. And so, I love the fact that I think we do have a loving church family. And that, you know, we hopefully love all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, we're supposed to love everybody, and, and that's true. But God wants us to know how important it is that we love our fellow Christians. And that we establish a fellowship and an environment with our fellow believers where other people can look in from the outside and go, wow, it's amazing how they, how they love each other. And can I say, I, I think that that's one of the reasons why God is so blessing our partnership as a church with that church in Mexicali and with Pastor Olachea. Because... This whole partnership and everything that God has done with these two churches and these two groups of Christians and, and these pastors and stuff is really evidence of the love that we should as Christians have for each other that is stronger than national boundaries, stronger than cultural differences, stronger than, than um, language barriers. That God's love is bigger and greater and can overcome all that. And we've seen that. And it is so evident that, like I said even Sunday, I was allowed an opportunity to speak in a denomination that had never allowed a pastor outside of their denomination to speak. That open door, that open door was created by love. It was created by love. That's what love does. Love knocks down doors. Love opens doors. That's what it does in our life. That's what it will do in the life of our church. Love will always break down doors and open doors. And we've seen that in our own fellowship. And that's what God, why He wants us to live that way. Because if we live with that kind of love, We'll see that happen in our lives as well. Let's pray. God, I pray tonight that ultimately this passage of Scripture that we 
examined tonight, Lord, would be an encouragement to us. God, that we be reminded that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. The misery and the pain that, that sin brings into people's lives. It, Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted, to bind up those that are hurting, to release the captive and to, to set men and women free, to truly experience freedom from sin, freedom from bondage, freedom from everything that ties us up in this life. And God, I pray that you and I would be living in the victory that Jesus Christ supplies. And God, that we would be sharing this victory with others. The kind of life that, that others could have if they simply invited Jesus into their life. And God, also help us to see that lifestyle matters. That our behavior matters. That it's not just what we say. It's, it's how we live that is so important. And when thinking of that, God, one of the most important things that you and I could do is to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. So God, I pray that as you look down upon us tonight, that you see a, a fellowship of people that truly love each other. Because Lord, we know that, that you smile when you look down and see your children in unity working together, loving on each other like You call us to do. But God, I pray, even as Paul said, that, that our love that we already have for each other would continue to increase and, and grow even more and more. So that, God, we would be such a loving fellowship that, that people couldn't help but notice, Lord, how we treat each other, how we respond to each other, how we react to each other, in such a different way than the world responds. Lord, we, we live in such a, a world that is so hateful and filled with, with hate and, and just all kinds of just sin. God, I pray that we would be an example of, of righteousness. That we would, we would be an example of Jesus to others. And God, may it start with us. Here we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys for coming tonight. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.